This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Welcome to the program. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain on today's edition of On Target. Beautiful Thursday afternoon out there. It's sunny, about 22 degrees. Can't beat it. And you can't beat my guest on today's edition of On Target because I have Dr. Janine Hubbard is my guest today. She is a registered psychologist and is also the co-president of the Association of Psychology, Newfoundland and Labrador. Dr. Hubbard, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And there's lots to talk about in the world of psychology. Um, but I want to start here because in February, uh, the association had sent out a news release stating that there is a psychology crisis in Newfoundland land in Labrador. And just to start off, I wanted to get an update on that situation. Has there been any movement, whether positive or negative, on that front in the last couple of months? Um, I would say for the most part, there's been very little activity, um, although I will give a lot of credit. Our new Minister of Health uh, reached out and did meet with uh, myself and my other uh, co-president uh, just last week to, you know, at least find out some of the information about what are the uh, issues and concerns um and you know we'll see where things move from there how are you left feeling after those uh, initial meetings with the new health minister um, I'd say cautiously optimistic. I think the problem is, um, much like we've been hearing in a number of the other health disciplines, such as physicians, such as nurses, uh, we are at a real crisis point in terms of availability of psychology services, in terms of psychologists leaving the public health sector, and sorry, and that includes education, post-secondary, as well as health. Uh, we're seeing uh, vacancies occurring in all of those situations. And it's also a profession that takes a long time to train. So it's not an easy fix in terms of suddenly producing a whole new uh, swath of uh, new graduates to fill those vacancies. So we've been continuing to press for issues, particularly around working conditions, um, to try to retain uh, the existing psychologists that are currently within the public sector. Because not only have we had this vast um, exodus uh, in our survey, it showed that basically two-thirds of psychologists have considered or are considering leaving the public sector. And now in speaking about that exodus, as of February, I believe the number was 211 psychologists in Newfoundland and Labrador. Has that number roughly stayed the same over the last couple of months? Uh, the number has stayed roughly the same. Um, what we're seeing is that psychologists who are leaving the private sector, while we may have a few uh, retirements, we may have a few move out of province, that piece has, is fairly stable. It's been the number of people leaving uh, public sector uh, positions to uh, either do something completely different or uh, move into uh, private practice. So what are you hearing from psychologists and what are some of the main reasons why people are choosing to leave? Well, it's interesting, and I really want to stress this because there's this misconception out there that people leave public uh, to go into private because uh, it's uh, much more financially lucrative. 
And it is and it isn't. Um, purely based on an hourly rate, yes, a private practice um, looks like it pays a lot more money. But when you consider things like health benefits, when you consider things like um, pensions and uh, annual leave and sick leave and, you know, all of those types of things, not to mention all the expenses people pay out for a private practice, the discrepancy isn't nearly as much as it sounds. What our members told us is that um, they're experiencing things like lack of respect, lack of autonomy, a blurring of professional roles so that everyone's being treated as interchangeable mental health uh, therapists, which doesn't actually respect any of the professions that are kind of lumped in together there and respect that uh, they actually work in a really complementary way, but that the training and the skill sets are different. Um, so really, it's, it's not coming down to finances. It's really coming down to um, making sure that uh, psychologists are able to practice to their full scope, that they're able to do the job that they have the uh, specialized training to do. Do you find that some of that stems from, um, as you mentioned, some people just don't have an understanding of what exactly psychology is and uh, I, I guess sort of what the what the scope of practice would be for a psychologist? Because I remember a couple of months ago, um, I was having a conversation with someone about psychology and over the course of the conversation, um, I had mixed up my words and I had used the word psychiatry. And someone, I was vi uh, very quickly reminded that those are two completely separate things. So, so do you find that that's part of the issue here? Uh, certainly that can be. Um, there are enough distinctions in terms of psychiatry um, providing or being able to pres uh, provide prescriptions, um, and they go through a MD training, whereas a psychologist goes through a PhD or here in the province what's known as a PsyD. So they go through a doctorate um, either in clinical psychology or the traditional PhD training. Uh, so that uh, distinction, you know, is always helpful to clarify those roles, we've always worked really well in a kind of a complementary fashion. Um, where we're seeing a lot more blurring is around mental health counselors, um, partly because there's a lot of uh, confusion in the general public as to what is a psychologist, what is their scope of practice, what is a social worker, what is their scope of practice, what is an unlicensed counselor, um, and what does their training look like, and how do all of these complement each other, and how are they really distinct and unique and different? What are wait times like in Newfoundland and Labrador right now to see a psychologist? Uh, I wish I had more encouraging news. That being said, even though I'm sounding discouraged, if you feel you need a psychologist, please reach out. Please stay on the waiting list. Please keep pursuing it because uh, making sure you are seen by the right person um, is extremely important, even if it does involve a bit of a wait. Uh, what we've been seeing is because we have these... Uh, massive vacancies in the public system, the private sector um, is suddenly busier than ever. In the past, uh, you know, you could get seen fairly quickly if you had uh, private insurance or, uh, you know, you had some sort of coverage that would allow you to see someone privately. But because of the vacancies, the private world is now absorbing more complex cases. They're absorbing cases that are probably better suited for multidisciplinary public service, um, but because uh, it's just not available, they're being picked up privately. Pri 
privately used to be short-term, goal-oriented. Um, oftentimes, they'd uh, see somebody while they were waiting to be picked up for the public system. Or, in the ideal situation, they'd be seen quickly, address the issues before they became chronic, and then they wouldn't need that further follow-up. Um, but, like I say, what we're now seeing is that um, many of the private practices have are either full or uh, experiencing really long waiting lists. But I do, like I say, with that there, please know we're continuing to try to work on it and um, that it's still worth pursuing. And I guess, too, that would raise concerns from from the association, not just for the care of, of patients who are looking to avail of these services, but as you mentioned, if, if, these, uh, if these psychologists are having to take on these more complex cases that they wouldn't have necessarily had to do in the past, uh, that would add more mental strain on psychologists on top of all what they're already facing. Sure. Well, and also remember, we're, what, two and a half years into a global pandemic where the mental health needs of the entire population have increased. We, I mean, we've got all kinds of data looking at all of those stressors. So what we're also finding is, you know, important reminder, psychologists are also human beings. We've been, you know, getting through all of this. We've been having to deal with uh, altering how we deliver services. We've had people, you know, trying to deal with homeschooling kids while trying to maintain um, clinical practice. And I think what you're finding is psychologists are saying we're tired um, so that in the past where you might be able to squeeze in that uh, those extra couple of clients at the end of the day uh, and work those 12-hour days that um, unfortunately um, you know we're, we're having to engage in self-care as well it, because we also need to practice what we preach uh, in terms of that self-care that work-life balance at the same time that puts a burden Knowing that there are people out there that desperately need services and knowing that uh, those services, th those needs aren't being met. Because end of the day, uh, one of the things that came through loud and clear in our survey from uh, our members was how passionate they are about the clinical work that they do, about the clients that they work with, about being able to see progress, about me being able to help make a change in someone's life, and that... Um, if all the rest of the bureaucratic uh, things could kind of go away and they could just work with their clients and do the work that they know they can do with their clients, uh, they'd be quite happy. In talking about psychologists leaving the sector because of you know some of the stress that they're under, do you have any information in regards to, say, psychologists who have had to go off on stress leave themselves because of uh, the situation or have had to avail of other sort of uh, workplace uh, services like that because of the stress that they're under, not necessarily leaving the job or leaving the sector, but having to go off because of uh, the stress that they're enduring? Um, I don't have specific stats, but I can say personally, um, but uh, just over a year ago, I took the first um, 
sort of more mental health, uh, stress leave, sick leave, whatever you want to call it, of my entire career. Um, it just because it was starting to impact my personal life, it was starting to impact my physical health. Um, and we've had a number of people who have never in their careers, you know, sort of needed that break, needed that um, recharging. Uh, so certainly I can say anecdotally we're experiencing it, we're seeing it. Um, we are certainly seeing people trying to request things like a leave of absence uh, to be able to either go and work in a different psychology position or, again, just kind of do something a little bit different within the field or take a complete break uh, to be able to take care of themselves so that we are in the best possible position to take care of our clients. We're speaking with Dr. Janine Hubbard on today's edition of On Target, talking about all things psychology in Newfoundland and Labrador. We're going to take a quick break on today's program, and when we come back, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about children and summertime boredom and what we could be doing there. We're going to dive into that topic coming up next. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And we are back here on today's edition of On Target. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain, who is taking some well-deserved time off uh, over the next couple of weeks. And on today's edition of the program, we're speaking with Dr. Janine Hubbard, registered psychologist and co-president of the Association of Psychology, Newfoundland and Labrador. And now I want to take the show in a bit of a different direction. We're going to talk about um, children and summertime boredom and sort of, you know, screen time that they may be experiencing over the next couple of months, uh, you know, throughout the summer. And uh, Dr. Hubbard, I was looking at an old uh, association news release recently, and in terms of summertime and kids, you're saying that it's important to let kids sort of embrace the boredom. Uh, so just to start off, tell me what's meant by that. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to all the parents out there who are going to hear that and um, cringe and uh, question what I'm suggesting because we are reaching the stage of the summer where the novelty of being away from school uh, is off. Perhaps kids' friends are off um, traveling or just not home and we're getting a little bit of that, I'm bored, I don't know what to do. Or the reliance on, well, if I don't know what to do, I'm suddenly going to spend a beautiful summer day inside uh, staring at my phone. Um, and it's really important. One of the things that, I mean, we've been losing for a while now, but in particular uh, throughout the pandemic has been, you remember the old-fashioned put the kids out in the backyard or send them off to play and come home when the streetlights come on? There was something to be said for uh, the skills that are developed when kids are doing unstructured playtime, when they're told, go find something to do. Um, what we know is whether it's solitary play or whether it's play with a sibling or whether it's play with a neighbor or a friend or a cousin, um, not having it structured, not having it organized by an adult helps to develop a whole bunch of cognitive and developmental skills that are really essential. Um, none of us are good at being bored these days. If you think about it, you're standing in line at the grocery store, uh, what's the first thing we do? We pull out our phones, we scroll Twitter, we look at emails, uh, we forget to talk to the person who's standing there with us or make conversation. Um, and we're, our kids are seeing 
that modeled. So we know that being forced to kind of find something to do helps with things like problem-solving skills. Creativity is one of the biggest things. Um, curiosity, imagination, uh, trying to figure out even, well, what are my interests? What are my hobbies? What are my aptitudes? What do I like to do? Uh, it also forces kids to navigate some social skills. Okay, we're going to invent a game or we're going to build a fort together. Well, how do I navigate uh, you know, how do I set rules? How bossy is one kid going to be versus um, how tolerant is another child going to be? All of those activities away from parental interference uh, really develops that whole capacity to problem solve, uh, to socialize, to, uh, as I said, get creative and use your imagination. And two, I I know that. What what would you say to um, a parent? Because I know of some people who they they need to have planned activities every day. You know, they they wake up and they go, okay, we're going here, 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 and here, and and they have like their their weekends are sort of always planned out with all these activities, and and they feel that they they need to be doing that all the time for their children. What 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 would you say to that? And in, in talking about that theme of just letting kids sort of have that unstructured time. Well, some of it is a balance and knowing the individual needs of your child and of your family. Um, and again, certainly encouraging the, if you're able to go and do family time together and go camping or, you know, go to the beach, have a bonfire, any of those things that celebrate and embrace, um, you know, Newfoundland summer, especially one as nice as we've had, that's great. But at the same time, even making sure that during that time, uh, there's a little bit of doubt time. There's a little bit of unstructured time um, where, you know, let's say you're going to the beach. Well, don't have every activity and game and, um, you know, thing planned down to a timeline. Let the kids go wandering. Let them explore. Again, let them use some of that curiosity. Um, you can structure it a little bit if you want by, say, for example, organizing like a scavenger hunt or, um, you know, if you've got kids who need that little bit more guidance. But um, knowing your child, knowing your family's needs, because uh, there are some kids who need to be busy, but within that busyness, figuring out ways to keep it um, unstructured for them so that they have to figure things out for themselves a little bit. Have you found that over the, you know, it seems like every year more and more technology is becoming part of our lives. Do you find that... There are more issues uh, coming up in, in recent years in regards to kids not having sort of that unstructured time and spending too much time on, say, uh, you know, the iPad or in front of the TV playing video games? Well, and listen, um, I'll admit to being as guilty of it as the next person. Yes, I'm the one pulling out the phone while standing in line. Um, we've all become accustomed to that in that if there is suddenly downtime, the electronics become our first go-to as opposed to, I mean, you kind of look at it like your junk food or your dessert. It should be the 
after we've done all the other fun things, then yes, in small doses, it's important and we can enjoy it, but it shouldn't be the first thing we reach for. Uh, and like I say, parents need to model this for kids as much as they can. That being said, really important to remember that the video games and the phones uh, nowadays, and especially with COVID and safety and uh, some of those restrictions, remember that that is for many of our teens, but also our tweens, um, their main source of socialization. So making sure we don't lump all of it into the same category and remembering that even if we're going to try to restrict or take a bit of an electronics break or holiday, that it's not an all or nothing because that is a vital link uh, for uh, socializing for a lot of our kids. How important is it to make sure that kids are still having that social interaction over the summer? Because I know that not being in school or even, say, for some kids being in a daycare program or something like that over the summer, they're just not seeing as many people as they would over the school year. You know, if, if, if they were in school, uh, when they're in school from September to June, they're seeing 20, you know, odd people a day just in their class, and they're going from that down to maybe only a couple of people per day so how important is it to keep that those levels of social interaction up uh, so summer? that depends on the individual child and the age um, because there are some kids who just really do have more social needs and want to do more of that interactive um, whether it's play at a younger age whether it's the hanging out and socializing um, as they're a little bit older there are various needs and it's also important to respect that some kids and some adults you know, really appreciate the downtime and not having to do all of the pressure of socializing and, um, you know, constantly being on and needing to interact. So it's making sure you know your child, know yourself, and kind of strike that balance. Um, where I get perhaps more concerned if there's been a complete absence is actually more in sort of the junior high, high school level. Um, and again, sometimes that's where we do need some of the electronic conversations, but that fear of missing out, that going back to school and hearing about all the things that, uh, you know, the classmates did over the summer that perhaps someone wasn't invited to or wasn't included in, uh, that piece, so staying out of the social loop over the summer at that age um, can be more concerning. There are other kids who just roll with it and they're fine and they, you know, reintegrate themselves without problem. Um, but for anybody who perhaps does struggle a little bit more with some of that socialization, it can be a little trickier, especially at those school transition periods um, where, I mean, shifting friendships is a normal developmental stage at the best of times. Um, and trying to explore and figure out, well, who do I want to socialize with? Who do I want to spend time with can be really uh, an important exploration, um, like I say, especially in kind of that junior high, early high school time period. But it is a balance, and like everything, it really varies from individual to individual. But it's worth having a conversation with your child. Now is the perfect time in the summer. I always like to do this with any age, and adults as well, going, okay, what are the things or what is the one thing that you absolutely would be disappointed if we got to Labor Day and we hadn't been able to do? Is there, you know, who's the one person that you wanted to see? What's the one activity you wanted to do? Um, because we've still got enough time to try to facilitate some of that. 
Speaking with Dr. Janine Hubbard on today's edition of On Target, we're up against another break, but we'll continue this conversation when we come back. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And welcome back to On Target here on VOCM. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain today. And my guest on today's edition of On Target is Dr. Janine Hubbard. She's a registered psychologist and co-president of the Association of Psychology, Newfoundland and Labrador. And before the break, uh, we were talking about um, children over the summer and addressing issues around boredom, around, um, you know, uh, too much screen time. And I wanted to jump back to that for just a quick second and, um, you know, what are some indicators that parents should be looking for that may indicate that their kids are having too much screen time? Um, again, it is a balance, and I think it's a question of are they reach partly differentiating because there's so many different types of screen time and we tend to lump it all into one category. Uh, is it that they're spending time um, – whether it's Snapchatting or uh, finding other ways where it's actual social communication. Is it that they are learning some new skills or tools watching YouTube videos? Um, is it that they're finding some downtime either by playing some video games or, uh, you know, surfing the web? Like, is it being used as kind of a relaxation or a distraction activity? Or is it being used uh, to combat boredom? And sometimes that's that's tough to try to figure out, but um, trying to strike that balance and having a conversation uh, as young as possible, but starting those conversations along the way in terms of the, well, what are you up to? Show me what you're looking at. That's a really cool video. Can I watch it with you? So that it's not a solitary activity. You might not be very good at the video game, but if your kid can spend some time trying to teach you how to play it and laughing at you as you... Uh, 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 stumble your way through it, it suddenly becomes a shared, enjoyed activity, um, and it gives you some insight into what are they up to, and getting them to explain, even if you're watching it going, I don't understand the appeal of this, I still don't understand the video, watching the videos for hours of other people playing things like Minecraft, I don't get it myself, but I will sit down with a kid and get them to explain what it is they enjoy about it why they enjoy. Sometimes they're learning new strategies. Sometimes they're uh, seeing more advanced skills. Some, and again, sometimes it's just because they're bored and it's kind of something to do. So engaging with them around those activities, even if, like I say, on one level, you just don't get it. But it might help you to appreciate why it's something that's so important to your child. And that just got me thinking, too, about about myself and my own son. I have a seven-year-old at home, and, and it, it's the same thing. You know, he'll be we, – we, we try to limit the screen time as, as much as we can, but typically for us it's, you know, if, if after a long day he's been at daycare all day or we've been out doing stuff – you can come home at the end of the day, watch your YouTube videos, that's fine. And you just got me thinking about the same thing. You know, he, he, he will come out and, you know, he'll want to include us in watching those videos. If he sees something funny, then, you know, I'll, I'll hear him running out to the kitchen and, and it's, Daddy, come in and watch this. This is really funny. And like you said, it's sometimes I'll look at those videos and go, oh, okay, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't understand, but you think it's funny, so all right, that's great. And, you know, it's that same sort of thing. 
and uh, and it's true you know and I for me as a parent that brings uh, quite a bit of joy to my life just to see him be so excited about about that sort of stuff and see that he wants to include me in that oh for sure and then you can help him develop some of those other curiosity skills by going I wonder else, what else is out there related to this. And so maybe it's looking at another YouTube video. Maybe it's then um, looking up information, going to some websites and finding some information. Maybe it's then uh, going on um, a hike and, uh, hey, remember, you know, that bird that we saw in that video? Let's go, you know, let's go look for things. So it's then taking that interest and that skill and moving it into the outside side world for them. So showing that there are many other ways to explore those interests and topics and that curiosity. So again, it's all about that balance. Nothing wrong with end of the day, a little bit of downtime. Like I say, things like camp, things like daycare, certainly during the school year, can be really intense for a lot of people. Um, Listen, do I go home at the end of a long day and spend a couple of minutes just sitting, whether it's, you know, scrolling Twitter, whether it's playing around a Candy Crush, something to kind of separate and just decompress at the end of the day. Now, there's a difference between doing that for 15 or 20 minutes and then getting up and making supper versus suddenly you've been doing it for four hours. Um, But understanding that for some kids, they need a little decompression time. They need a little bit of that that quiet time. And for other kids, they come home at the end of the day and what they need is to run around the yard and burn off some of that energy. So again, just knowing your child, knowing their needs and trying to strike a balance. Way easier said than done. I totally get it. Any parents out there listening, I totally get it. It's easy for me to spout off. It's really hard. Um, And remembering that there is no such thing as perfect parenting. And we do all have to spend the time where we got to cook supper and we just, or have an important phone conversation. And we just need the kids out of the way. And if having them go watch some YouTube or play a video game for half an hour accomplishes that, that's okay. Well said, well said. Um, I do want to switch topics again here now for a little bit because there's a few more things that I did want to get to on the program. Um, and one has been this incredible heat <laughs> that we've been experiencing. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I personally haven't, I can't remember a summer that's been this hot in quite a very long time. And, you know, I, everyone's been experiencing it. Um, is there a psychological impact of having such extreme heat on a, on a person's behaviors or moods or anything like that? There actually is, uh, and it's one of the reasons why we're mindful of it. Um, and, of course, here in Newfoundland, you know, come the spring, as soon as it goes over 10 degrees, we're all in our shorts and T-shirts and embracing it. Um, but we are certainly not used to the levels of heat that we've been experiencing, nor is our infrastructure set up to um, experience that kind of heat. Uh, Places where that's always the case have, you know, air conditioning, they have the ventilation, they have have things that are set up to cope with heat levels in ways that here in the province we're just not prepared for. But there actually has been a fair bit of research over the years looking at things like heat waves. Um, One of the concerns is that it can result in increased um, aggression and and uh, physical violence. So, you know, hearing things about the conditions down at the penitentiary and the lack of ventilation in a potentially volatile um 
group of individuals, um, that is certainly a concern. We unfortunately see things like an increase in uh, domestic violence, interpersonal violence. Uh, people become really irritable and short-tempered. So the the aggression and violence piece is a big one that we really worry about. Uh, sometimes it's inward violence. There's been some documentation, not as strong as the outward violence, but um, that it can um, look at an increase in uh, suicide. So there are big picture reasons that we worry about it. And then there are the more day-to-day things. Certainly we know sleep is essential and sleep gets disrupted for most of us in the heat. Um, And both related to sleep, but also just related to coping with heat, we see things like cognitive changes so that people aren't able to focus and concentrate as well. They're having memory issues, uh, just their ability to sustain effort. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've found a lot of the days that sort of my any attention or energy or capacity to do things by about mid-afternoon, I'm pooped. Um, you just we just don't have that same stamina um, but we for a couple of days we can usually work our way through it unfortunately we're having I hope a bit of a break this uh, over the next little bit but when it does go on for a period of time we do worry about things like uh, workplace accidents or you know you're more prone if you're not paying attention or being as detail-oriented um, that that can result in workplace issues that can result in hopefully for most people just some minor inconveniences but certainly something to be mindful of um, and certainly good reason to find the excuse to make sure that you're finding ways to cool off, finding ways to go and spend some time at a cooling station or in a pond or in an air-conditioned environment, somewhere where your body and your brain can have the chance to cool off a little bit. Never thought I'd see the day where we're talking about the effects of extreme heat in Newfoundland and Labrador, but here we are. See, we're, sadly, we're so much better equipped for something like Snowmageddon. Uh, <laughs> but this, unfortunately, may be a bit more of a reality for a lot of us, um, as we also, for many people, this is then a trigger of uh, something that we, um, you know, call uh, eco-anxiety. The more reminders that we have that, right, uh, we have some global climate change issues going on, and this is a sign or a symptom of them. For most of us, it's it's just been a really extra nice summer with, you know, long stretches of nice, tolerable weather. But then when it goes just that much higher, we're reminded of, oh, yeah, our world, th- this is nice for us here in Newfoundland and Labrador, other than, you know, for a few days. But in other parts of the globe, we're seeing it has some ca- fairly catastrophic um, effects. And that segues beautifully into what will be our final segment of the day. We're going to talk about eco-anxiety coming up after the break here on On Target. I'm Richard Duggan speaking with Dr. Janine Hubbard, registered psychologist and co-president of the Association of Psychologists, Newfoundland and Labrador. We're going to take our final break of the day and we'll continue this conversation when we come back. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. 
And we're back here on On Target. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain. Dr. Janine Hubbard is my guest today. And we mentioned it just before the break, uh, but now we're going to talk about something called eco-anxiety. And Dr. Hubbard, I guess just to start off, explain what exactly is eco-anxiety? Well, I guess I should say it's not an official diagnosis, um, but it's something that psychologists are increasingly studying because we're realizing that it's a thing. Um, it really uh, does seem to be something that many individuals are experiencing, particularly our young people, particularly our youth, um, but any age can, can certainly be experiencing it. And what it's finding is that when we have um, unusual weather events, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a flood, whether it's a forest, fire or even just a heat wave, uh, as we were mentioning earlier, it's a reminder that there are bigger global um, things happening that often make people feel very anxious and very small because it feels like it's something that's so out of their control. Uh, and particularly the youth are thinking that uh, how much more that's likely to affect them in the future. So they're questioning what, you know, what the world is going to look like for them in 20, 30, 40 years. And it relates in particular to some feelings of hopelessness, of, as I sort of said, not having any power, not um, having any ability to make a, a change. So they're feeling that this is kind of this inevitable future. And in particular, when you see our youth get really frustrated with, you know, governments and adults saying, why don't you guys see this? Why aren't you doing anything about it? Um, and we're seeing that increasingly coming up. The good news is it's actually empowering a lot of our youth. We've seen that it is something that they are taking very personally and they are acting on. Yeah, and we saw that with the, the climate strikes uh, that were held not just in Newfoundland, but across the entire world. And I remember covering some of those events and seeing uh, young students just coming out in droves, marching up Prince Philip Drive to Confederation Building. So it, it really is something, like you said, that it has, for a lot of people, really motivated them in trying to get action on this. Well, because one of the biggest things we know about anxiety is we become more anxious when we feel that things are out of our control or we're powerless to do anything about it. One of the ways that we decrease anxiety is by trying to take control, trying to figure out, well, I can't fix the big global things, but what are some small things that I can do that even though I might not see it make an immediate impact, I know it's going to make a difference. This is why uh, kids uh, and youth get into things like, you know, we go and do the uh, beach cleanup. Um, we do the teaching them about recycling. We teach them, we, we look at things like getting them involved in gardening and planting and um, conservation. And that's one of the areas. So particularly if you do happen to have someone in your life who uh, is feeling really distressed when they see some of these things. Like you start to hear some of that hopelessness, that future thinking and concerns. Uh, first of all, try to limit exposure to news around the um, eco stories because that can, you know, watching that dramatic footage of, you know, floods or fires or any of those kind of things can trigger that anxiety. So minimize the amount of footage you're watching, um, but then work with them to figure out what are some small things we can do. 
um, what's, some, what's one thing that we can do today that makes a little bit of a difference? Uh, even for some of the kids, it's figuring out, well, how do we use some less electricity? Uh, how, do we, how do we do some things within our immediate household that can help towards the uh, future. Um, and that feeling of empowerment is really uh, what we're looking towards. The other thing I would say is, because let's face it, part of teenage brain development is um, they get very into issues and very passionate about it and don't want to hear any of our counter arguments. And that's okay, again, that's normal development, but making sure you're not minimizing the, their concerns. If this is something that they're feeling passionate about again listen to them find out what they're feeling um, if they're saying hey I want to become vegetarian or vegan or I want us to do more plant-based diet because that's something that's going to help my future figure out with them a way that they can do it safely so it's not going to impact um, their health uh, but being respectful of this is a way that they are trying to feel empowered. So working with it, whether it becomes a lifelong passion, whether it becomes a short, um, I don't want to say phase, but there are t some teens where, you know, they try things and then they redirect their passions in another area. Just being respectful and hearing their concerns and seeing what you can do to help them out. Um, as much as possible within the family without necessarily needing to change everything the family is doing. Dr. Janine Hubbard, thank you so much for your time today. We are up against the clock, but uh, that was a very fast hour and uh, lots of interesting conversations there. So thank you so much for coming on to the program today. I really appreciate this. Oh, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Again, that was Dr. Janine Hubbard. She is a registered psychologist and co-president of the Association of Psychology, Newfoundland and Labrador. That does it for me on today's edition of On Target. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. We'll talk soon. Have a great day.